The Shambler from the Stars by Robert Block I am what I profess to be, a writer of weird fiction. Since earliest childhood, I have been enthralled by the cryptic fascination of the unknown and the unguessable. The nameless fears, the grotesque dreams, the queer, half-intuitive fancies that haunt our minds have always exercised for me a potent and inexplicable delight. In literature, I have walked the midnight paths with Poe, or crept amidst the shadows with Machen, combed the realms of horrific stars with Baudelaire, or steeped myself with Earth's inner madness amidst the tales of ancient lore. A meager talent for sketching and crayon work led me to attempt crude picturizations involving the outlandish denizens of my knighted thoughts. The same somber trend of intellect which drew me in my art interested me in obscure realms of musical composition. The symphonic strains of the planet suite and the like were my favorites. My inner life soon became a ghoulish feast of eldritch, tantalizing horrors. My outer existence was comparatively dull. As time went on, I found myself drifting more and more into the life of a penurious recluse, a tranquil, philosophical existence amidst a world of books and dreams. A man must live. By nature, constitutionally and spiritually unfitted for manual labor, I was at first puzzled about the choice of a suitable vocation. The Depression complicated matters to an almost intolerable degree, and for a time I was close to utter economic disaster. It was then that I decided to write. I procured a battered typewriter, a ream of cheap paper, and a few carbons. My subject matter did not bother me. What better field than the boundless realms of a colorful imagination? I would write of horror, fear, and the riddle that is death. At least, in the callowness of my unsophistication, this was my intention. My first attempt soon convinced me how utterly I had failed. Sadly, miserably, I fell short of my aspired goal. My vivid dreams became on paper merely meaningless jumbles of ponderous adjectives, and I found no ordinary words to express the wondrous terror of the unknown. My first manuscripts were miserable and futile documents, the few magazines using such material being unanimous in their rejections. I had to live. Slowly but surely I began to adjust my style to my ideas. Laboriously I experimented with words, phrases, sentence structure. It was work, and hard work at that. I soon learned to sweat. At last, however, one of my stories met with favor. Then a second, a third, a fourth. Soon I had begun to master the more obvious tricks of the trade, and the future looked brighter at last. It was with an easier mind that I returned to my dream life and my beloved books. My stories afforded me a somewhat meager livelihood, and for a time this sufficed. But not for long. Ambition, ever an illusion, was the cause of my undoing. I wanted to write a real story, not the stereotyped ephemeral sort of tale I turned out for the magazines, but a real work of art. The creation of such a masterpiece became my ideal. I was not a good writer, but that was not entirely due to my errors in mechanical style. It was, I felt, the fault of my subject matter. Vampires, werewolves, ghouls, mythological monsters. These things constituted material of little merit. Commonplace imagery, ordinary adjectival treatment, and a prosaically anthropocentric point of view were the chief detriments to the production of a really good weird tale. I must have new subject matter, truly unusual plot material. If only I could conceive of something that was teratologically incredible. 
I long to learn the songs the demons sing as they swoop between the stars, or hear the voices of the olden gods as they whisper their secrets to the echoing void. I yearn to know the terrors of the grave, the kiss of maggots on my tongue, the cold caress of a rotting shroud upon my body. I thirsted for the knowledge that lies in the pits of mummied eyes, and burned for wisdom known only to the worm. Then I could really write, and my hopes be truly realized. I sought a way. Quietly I began a correspondence with isolated thinkers and dreamers all over the country. There was a hermit in the western hills, a savant in the northern wilds, a mystic dreamer in New England. It was from the latter that I learned of the ancient books that held strange lore. He quoted guardedly from the legendary Necronomicon, and spoke timidly of a certain book of Ibon that was reputed to surpass it in the utter wildness of its blasphemy. He himself had been a student of these volumes of primal dread, but he did not want me to search too far. He had heard many strange things as a boy in which haunted Arkham, where the old shadows still leer and creep, and since then he had wisely shunned the blacker knowledge of the forbidden. At length, after much pressing on my part, he reluctantly consented to furnish me with the names of certain persons he deemed able to aid me in my quest. He was a writer of notable brilliance and wide reputation among the discriminating few, and I knew he was keenly interested in the outcome of the whole affair. As soon as his precious list came into my possession, I began a widespread postal campaign in order to obtain access to the desired volumes. My letters went out to universities, private libraries, reputed seers, and the leaders of carefully hidden and obscurely designated cults. But I was foredoomed to disappointment. The replies I received were definitely unfriendly, almost hostile. Evidently the rumored possessors of such lore were angered that their secret should be thus unveiled by a prying stranger. I was subsequently the recipient of several anonymous threats through the mail, and I had one very alarming phone call. This did not bother me nearly so much as the disappointing realization that my endeavors had failed. Denials, evasions, refusals, threats, these would not aid me. I must look elsewhere. The bookstores. Perhaps on some musty and forgotten shelf I might discover what I sought. Then I began an interminable crusade. I learned to bear my numerous disappointments with unflinching calm. Nobody in the common run of shops seemed ever to have heard of the frightful Necronomicon the evil book of Ibon, or the disquieting cultist de Gaules. Persistence brings results. In a little old shop on South Dearborn Street, amidst dusty shelves seemingly forgotten by time, I came to the end of my search. There, securely wedged between two century-old editions of Shakespeare, stood a great black volume with iron facings. Upon it, in hand-engraved lettering, was the inscription De Vermis Mysterious, or Mysteries of the Worm. The proprietor could not tell me how it had come into his possession. Years before, perhaps, it had been included in some second-hand job lot. He was obviously unaware of its nature, for I purchased it with a dollar bill. He wrapped the ponderous thing for me, well pleased at this unexpected sale, and bade me a very satisfied good day. I left hurriedly the precious prize under my arm. What a find! I had heard of this book before. Ludwig Prynn was its author who had perished at the inquisitorial stake in Brussels when the witchcraft trials were at their height. A strange character, alchemist, necromancer, reputed mage, he boasted of having attained a miraculous age when he at last suffered a fiery immolation at the hands of the secular arm. He was said to have proclaimed himself the sole survivor of the ill-fated Ninth Crusade, 
exhibiting as proof certain musty documents of attestation. It is true that a certain Ludwig Prynn was numbered among the gentlemen retainers of Montserrat in the Olden Chronicles, but the incredulous branded Ludwig as a cracked-brained impostor, through perchance a lineal descendant of the original warrior. Ludwig attributed his sorcerous learning to the years he spent as a captive among the wizards and wonder-workers of Syria, and glibly he spoke of encounters with the jinns and efreets of elder Eastern myth. He is known to have spent some time in Egypt, and there are legends among the Libyan dervishes concerning the old seer's deeds in Alexandria. At any rate, his declining days were spent in the Flemish lowland country of his birth, where he resided, appropriately enough, in the ruins of a pre-Roman tomb that stood in the forest near Brussels. Ludwig was reputed to have dwelt there amidst a swarm of familiars and fearsomely invoked conjurations. Manuscripts still extant speak of him guardedly as being attended by invisible companions and star-sent servants. Peasants shunned the forest by night, for they did not like certain noises that resounded to the moon, and they most certainly were not anxious to see what worshipped at the old pagan altars that stood crumbling in certain of the darker glens. Be that as it may, these creatures that he commanded were never seen after Prynne's capture by the inquisitorial minions. Searching soldiers found the tomb entirely deserted, though it was thoroughly ransacked before its destruction. The supernatural entities, the unusual instruments and compounds, all had most curiously vanished. A search of the forbidding woods and a timorous examination of the strange altars did not add to the information. There were fresh bloodstains on the altars, and fresh bloodstains on the rack, too, before the questioning of Prynne was finished. A series of particularly atrocious tortures failed to elicit any further disclosures from the silent wizard, and at length the weary interrogators ceased and cast the aged sorcerer into a dungeon. It was in prison while awaiting trial that he penned the morbid, horror-hinting lines of De Vermis Mysterious, known today as Mysteries of the Worm. How it was ever smuggled through the alert guards is a mystery in itself, but a year after his death it saw print in Cologne. It was immediately suppressed, but a few copies had already been privately distributed. These in turn were transcribed, and although there was a later censored and deleted printing, only the Latin original is accepted as genuine. Throughout the centuries, a few of the elect have read and pondered on its lore. The secrets of the old archmage are known today only to the initiated, and they discourage all attempts to spread their fame, for certain very definite reasons. This, in brief, was what I knew of the volume's history at the time it came into my possession. As a collector's item alone, the book was a phenomenal find, but on its contents I could pass no judgment. It was in Latin. Since I can speak or translate only a few words of that learned tongue, I was confronted by a barrier as soon as I opened the musty pages. It was maddening to have such a treasure trove of dark knowledge at my command and yet lack the key to its unearthing. For a moment I despaired, since I was unwilling to approach any local classical or Latin scholar in connection with so hideous and blasphemous a text. Then came an inspiration. Why not take it east and seek the aid of my friend? He was a student of the classics, and would be less likely to be shocked by the horrors of Prynne's baleful revelations. Accordingly, I addressed a hasty letter to him, and shortly thereafter received my reply. He would be glad to assist me. I must by all means come at once. Providence is a lovely town. My friend's house was ancient and quaintly Georgian. The first floor was a gem of colonial atmosphere. The second, beneath antique gables that shadowed the enormous window, served as a workroom for my host. 
It was here that we pondered that grim, eventful night last April, here beside the open window that overlooked the azure sea. It was a moonless night, haggard and wan with a fog that filled the darkness with bat-like shadows. In my mind's eye I can see it still, the tiny lamp-lit room with the big table and the high-backed chairs, the bookcases bordering the walls, the manuscripts stacked in special files. My friend and I sat at the table, the volume of mystery before us. His lean profile threw a disturbing shadow on the wall, and his waxen face was furtive in the pale light. There was an inexplicable air of portentous revelation quite disturbing in its potency. I sensed the presence of secrets waiting to be revealed. My companion detected it too. Long years of occult experience had sharpened his intuition to an uncanny degree. It was not cold that made him tremble as he sat there in his chair. It was not fever that caused his eyes to flame like jewel-incarned fires. He knew, even before he opened that accursed tome, that it was evil. The musty scent that rose from those antique pages carried with it the reek of the tomb. The faded leaves were maggoty at the edges, and rats had gnawed the leather. Rats, which perchance had a ghastlier food for common fare. I had told my friend the volume's history that afternoon, and had unwrapped it in his presence. Then he had seemed willing and eager to begin an immediate translation. Now he demurred. It was not wise, he insisted. This was evil knowledge. Who could say what demon-dreaded lore these pages might contain, or what ills befall the ignorant one who sought to tamper with their contents? It is not good to learn too much, and men had died for exercising the rotted wisdom that these leaves contained. He begged me to abandon the quest while the book was still unopened, and to seek my inspiration in saner things. I was a fool. Hastily I overruled his objections with vain and empty words. I was not afraid. Let us at least gaze into the contents of our prize. I began to turn the pages. The result was disappointing. It was an ordinary-looking volume after all, yellow, crumbling leaves set with heavy black-lettered Latin texts. That was all. No illustrations, no alarming designs. My friend could no longer resist the allurement of such a rare bibliophilic treat. In a moment he was peering intently over my shoulder, occasionally muttering snatches of Latin phrasing. Enthusiasm mastered him at last. Seizing the precious tome in both hands, he seated himself near the window and began reading paragraphs at random, occasionally translating them into English. His eyes gleamed with a feral light. His cadaverous profile grew intent as he pored over the moldering runes. Sentences thundered in fearsome litany, then faded into tones below a whisper as his voice became as soft as a viper's hiss. I caught only a few phrases now, for in his introspection he seemed to have forgotten me. He was reading of spells and enchantments. I recall allusions to such gods of divination as Father Yig, Dark Han, and Serpent-Bearded Biotis. I shuddered, for I knew these names of old, but I would have shuddered more had I known what was yet to come. It came quickly. Suddenly he turned to me in great agitation, and his excited voice was shrill. He asked me if I remembered the legends of Prince Sorcery and the tales of the invisible servants he commanded from the stars. I assented, little understanding the cause of his sudden frenzy. Then he told me the reason. Here, under a chapter on familiars, he had found an orison, or spell, perhaps the very one Prin had used to call upon his unseen servitors from beyond the stars. Let me listen while he read. I sat there dully, like a stupid, uncomprehending fool. Why did I not scream? 
try to escape or tear that monstrous manuscript from his hands. Instead, I sat there, sat there while my friend, in a voice cracked with unnatural excitement, read in Latin a long and sonorously sinister invocation. Phoebe, magnum inominandum, signa stellarum negarum et buffoni forma sarroqua sigillum. The croaking ritual proceeded, then rose on wings of nighted hideous horror. The words seemed to writhe like flames in the air, burning into my brain. The thundering tomes cast an echo into infinity, beyond the farthermost star. They seemed to pass into primal and undimensioned gates to seek out a listener there and summon him to earth. Was it all an illusion? I did not pause to ponder. For that unwitting summons was answered. Scarcely had my companion's voice died away in that little room before the terror came. The room turned cold. A sudden wind shrieked in through the open window, a wind that was not of earth. It bore an evil bleeding from afar, and at the sound, my friend's face became a pale white mask of newly awakened fear. Then there was a crunching at the walls, and the window ledge buckled before my staring eyes. From out of the nothingness beyond that opening came a sudden burst of lubricious laughter, a hysterical cackling born of utter madness. It rose to the grinning quintessence of all horror without mouth to give it birth. The rest happened with startling swiftness. All at once my friend began to scream as he stood by the window, scream and claw wildly at empty air. In the lamplight I saw his features contort into a grimace of insane agony. A moment later his body rose unsupported from the floor and began to bend outward to a back-breaking degree. A second later came the sickening grind of broken bones. His form now hung in mid-air, the eyes glazed and the hands clutching convulsively as if at something unseen. Once again there came the sound of maniacal tittering, but this time it came from within the room. The stars rocked in red anguish. The cold wind gibbered in my ears. I crouched in my chair, my eyes riveted on that astounding scene in the corner. My friend was shrieking now. His screams blended with that gleeful, atrocious laughter from the empty air. His sagging body, dangling in space, bent backward once again as blood spurted from the torn neck, spraying like a ruby fountain. That blood never reached the floor. It stopped in mid-air as the laughter ceased, and a loathsome sucking noise took its place. With a new and accelerated horror, I realized that the blood was being drained to feed the invisible entity from beyond. What creature of space had been so suddenly and unwittingly invoked? What was that vampiric monstrosity I could not see? Even now a hideous metamorphosis was taking place. The body of my companion became shrunken, wizened, lifeless. At length it dropped to the floor and lay nauseatingly still. But in mid-air another and a ghastlier change occurred. A reddish glow filled the corner by the window a bloody glow. Slowly but surely the dim outlines of a presence came into view, the blood-filled outlines of that unseen shambler from the stars. It was red and dripping, an immensity of pulsing, moving jelly, a scarlet blob with myriad tentacular trunks that waved and waved. There were suckers on the tips of the appendages, and these were opening and closing with a ghoulish lust. The thing was bloated and obscene, a headless, 
faceless, eyeless bulk with the ravenous maw and titanic talons of a starborn monster. The human blood on which it had fed revealed the hitherto invisible outlines of the feaster. It was not a sight for sane eyes to see. Fortunately for my reason, the creature did not linger. Spurning the dead and flabby corpse-like thing on the floor, it purposely seized the opening. There it disappeared, and I heard its far-off derisive laughter floating on the wings of the wind as it receded into the gulfs from whence it had come. That was all. I was left alone in the room with the limp and lifeless body at my feet. The book was gone, but there were bloody prints upon the wall, bloody swathes upon the floor, and the face of my poor friend was a bloody death's head leering up at the stars. For a long time I sat alone in silence before I set to fire that room and all it contained. After that I went away laughing, for I knew that the blaze would eradicate all trace of what remained. I had arrived only that afternoon, and there was none who knew, and none to see me go, for I departed ere the glowing flames were detected. I stumbled for hours through the twisted streets and quaked with renewed and idiotic laughter as I looked up at the burning, ever-gloating stars that eyed me furtively through wreaths of haunted fog. After a long while I became calm enough to board a train. I have been calm throughout the journey home, and calm throughout the penning of this screed. I was even calm when I read of my friend's curious accidental death in the fire that destroyed his dwelling. It is only at night, when the stars gleam, that dreams return to drive me into a gigantic maze of frantic fears. Then I take to drugs, in a vain attempt to ban those leering memories from my sleep. But I really do not care, for I shall not be here long. I have a curious suspicion that I shall again see that shambler from the stars. I think it will return soon without being resummoned and I know that when it comes it will seek me out and carry me down into the darkness that holds my friend. Sometimes I almost yearn for the advent of that day, for then I shall learn once and for all the mysteries of the worm. <laughs>